All right, so Thomas Marshall, thanks for coming on, brother. Yeah, of course. No problem. Glad, uh, glad I could come on. Got the uh, Ron White look going on with the uh, cigar and the, the bourbon, or just the cigar. Yeah. Hang on just a second. Let me, uh, let me finish getting fired up here. <laughs> there we go. So uh, the cigar is uh, My Father's The Judge, uh, which is kind of one of my go-tos. And uh, whiskey-wise, actually, I, I happen to have this whiskey here with me. It's kind of a cool story. So what I'm drinking is, uh, is Hooten Young 12-Year. Now, uh, I don't know if that name sounds familiar to you, but uh, did you ever see the movie Black Hawk Down? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, classic, right? Everybody's yeah. seen that movie. Yeah, okay. Movie. Do you remember the scene where the dude goes, oh, this is my safety? Everybody remembers yeah. that, right? Yeah. Okay. So that character, like the real-life Delta guy that that incident happened with was Norman Hooten. So that was the guy that Eric Bana played in the movie. So Norm Hooten is long retired out of the unit and uh, uh, he's doing something else now as a day job. But on the side, he, he actually started a whiskey and cigar brand called Hooten Young. Uh, he partnered with uh, his business partner is the, uh, is the father of one of his son's friends. So uh, Norm's son went to West Point. Okay. Kind of figures. Uh, yeah. So Norm's son went to West Point, and the way Norm tells it, he wasn't really much of a cigar guy, even when he was still on active duty and things like that. Uh, and he met uh, his son, befriended a kid, and then uh, the parents kind of met up at like a uh, at like a parents' weekend or like a uh, like a graduation type event for West Point. And this other kid's dad and Norm Hooten got to talking and got to smoking cigars, and Norm really got into it. And, uh, so now uh, Hooten Young is a cigar brand. That's how they started. Now they also do, uh, they have an aged American whiskey as well. Oh, so, so that's, both them? Both yes. That? Yeah. So it's the, the other guy, I don't know what his first name is, but, but Young, uh, and then Norm Hooten are the two guys and they went into business together to do this, uh, to do this sort of cigars and whiskey lifestyle brand. Uh, but kind of a super cool tie in. I figured it was, was kind of appropriate for, for yeah. the show. Definitely. So that's what you're drinking, and that's also the the stogie as well. No, the stogie actually, I, I don't have one of his stogies with me right now. Um, this is not a veteran brand. It's it's my father's. It's just kind of one of my go tos. Uh, but yeah, so the whiskey is is the this is my safety guide. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I did not know yeah. that. So let's just take it from the beginning, man. Um, you living in Arizona right now? Um, are you from Arizona? I'm not. Not originally. Uh, I was actually born and raised in New York City. Um, like I said, lived there until I, until I graduated college. I went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy uh, for college, which is actually kind of just down the road. It's about 40 minutes down the road from West Point. Uh, it's also a, a service academy. I had to get nominated by a, like a congressperson to, to get admitted and things like that. And as soon as I graduated there, I got transferred out of New York. I, I actually went active duty into the Army uh, from the Merchant Marine. So uh, they transferred me out of, out of New York pretty quick. And I I don't know. I've been back once or twice to visit since, but, uh, you know, I don't have any plans of going back in the near future. New York city is crazy right now, man. Have you seen like some of the stuff that's going on? Yeah. Uh, you know, for, uh, this year has kind of shaken up a lot of people's, uh, perception of what normal life looks like. And, and, you know, New York was obviously one of the first places to get hit really hard with COVID. Uh, and then, you know, later in the year we had a, a, a string of, of, you know, civil unrest that, you know, stemmed from the, use of force incident in Minneapolis. And I think New York got hit pretty hard there too. You know, there were some sections of New York where I was 
that I was pretty familiar with as a kid growing up that like, you know, people were chucking Molotov cocktails and flipping over police cars and stuff like that. Like th that's just stuff that I saw from like my friends in high school that still live there. Uh, it looked pretty gnarly. Yeah. I think New York probably got hit probably the hardest. I mean, if not some places over in California, I mean, it's, hard yeah. <laughs> that's always going to be tough too. Cause a lot of people in California, they have their, their hands tied with like the, the second amendment stuff down there. Oh, well, New York, I, I, at this point, I think New York might be worse than LA in terms of gun control stuff. Why is that? Um, like why is and how did that happen? Uh, the same reason it happened in California. If you go upstate New York, the, the, the political and the cultural landscape changes very quickly. Um, and it is not what you would, would expect if you have spent any time in New York City. Um, and those people just get, you know, when election season comes around, they just get drowned out by, you know, New York City and Long Island and Westchester County, kind of the New York metro area, uh, you know, where I grew up. And uh, it's really sad because those people just, they never get to have a fair say when it comes to kind of having their rights taken away and, and, and having, you know, law dictated to them uh, by, by 10 million people that, you know, live downstate in Manhattan and will never kind of know what their lifestyle is like on the day-to-day. -day. I never really thought about that. That's a good point. Yeah, it's it's crazy, man. It's a, it's a crazy time we're living in. I say it's almost every uh, Yeah. It's so true. It, it gets crazier. It keeps on going. It does. I, I Man, I hope we're going to catch a break next year. I really do. Uh, I've had I've had enough crises for one decade, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was. that's what I was going to ask you about. What do you think is going to happen next? um with all this kind of stuff i don't know i think the next 30 to 45 days are going to be really interesting you know, in terms of i think everybody's kind of wondering if we are kind of on the backslide now um or if if things are just going to continue to sort of ratchet up and i don't know i don't have an answer i don't have a magic eight ball um you know, I've spent the last three years working, uh, you know, on staff at a, at a survival and prepper magazine. And this is kind of our job is to sort of shake yeah. the eight ball and, and sort of tell people, you know, kind of what we think is coming and how to prepare for it and sort of what they can do to be a little more self-sufficient. And I tell you what, man, we have been stumped over and over and over this year with not just things that have happened, but uh, how people have reacted. You know, yeah. off-grid has been in print since... I want to say like 2010 and in a decade of survival magazines, we have never ever run an issue warning people to stock up on toilet paper <laughs> ever one for that. Say that again. Did you guys actually run an issue for that? Uh, you, you know, it's tough because the print cycle, our print cycles are like a 90 day production cycle. So, you know, we've been really kind of the issue is something happens. And then even if we can write an article day, see newsstands for 90 days and then you know let's not get too far into the, the attention span of, of the american populace but um a lot of times that stuff get you know it by the time we can print something and people aren't interested or cheer by the time we print something you know covid kind of really blew up in march you know if, if we had written uh, an entire issue about covid in march when it happened by the time it hit newsstands you know we already had the george floyd incident and Breonna Taylor protests and, and, you know, people had already kind of pivoted to the next sort of national level crisis point. So it's been crazy just to keep everything going on. That'd be so difficult because you're just 90 days behind everybody else. I mean, is that, 
Do you think that's why a lot of actual print publications are kind of going out? you think that's why? Just because they're that far behind to actually hit the shelves? It, it depends. Uh, you know, we only run – Off-Grid and Marie Coil only run six issues a year each. Okay. Um, you know, there are other magazines out there that are running every month. Some, some magazines run, you know, 14 issues a year, and, you know, they're just cramming content in every three weeks, and, and they might have a shorter fuse than we do. And, and you yeah, know, that's a strategic decision that we made to focus on kind of quality over quantity in terms of, of the stories we run and the topics we address. Um, you know, I'll say for us, we have seen explosive growth on the digital side. You know, in addition to Off-Grid Magazine, we also have Off-Grid Web. Uh, and so we've been pushing a lot of content on that side that's been a little more, uh, people can get it right away. You know, we can put up a web article in, in 48 hours or 72 hours. So yeah. that's kind of been our answer to that. Um, I don't know. I'm old school. I'm biased because I started as a print writer and a print editor. So I kind of always liked the feeling of, of the magazine in my hand. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's something to be said for, especially with quarantines, people just, I think some people just aren't going out and buying physical magazines. Um, and so we have, have the website to kind of cover down and, and provide that service for those people. Yeah, I think I kind of agree with you on that. Like when it comes to actually reading things, I don't like to read off my screens. I like to just actually be able to hold something. Yep. Um, I think a lot more people than I think a lot more people are like that than we we think. But uh, you know, yeah, I man, I haven't put you know ever since I started working in, in print publishing, I hear it all the time. Oh, print's dead. Print's a dinosaur. It's a dying animal. And like I still around. You know, yeah. I've been hearing that for the better part of a decade. And and yeah, you know, it's we're still making magazines and people are still buying. That's true. Still working. Yeah. But I, I think, uh, you know, I do think that print as, as a brand, you know, for people that are kind of in that space, I think print has to be a component of sort of a more, more holistic package. Right. Cause like I said, we have a website, we've got recoil TV as a streaming service. We have all our social media accounts where we put kind of infographics and tidbits up on that. So, do we see a print brand as it is a thriving? Absolutely. But it is thriving as a component of, you know, a kind of a whole series of, of avenues that people have to get to our information. I feel like it's a credibility factor too. Actually having something in, in your hands seems a lot more real than, cause I mean, anybody can make a, a news site or anything like that. You know what yep. I mean? So I bet that. Definitely- yeah. And it requires a little more vetting, a little more due diligence to put a print article together. I, I would like to think that that counts for something in terms of the quality of our information. You know, but I, I, that's, I guess it's probably going to just boil down to personal preference on the, on the reader's side. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So you went into the Army. Uh, you're from New York. You went into the Army. What decided, what did you, you know, what made you decide to do that and move forward there? Um, so when, when I was nine years old, my great uncle, who was a Marine on Iwo Jima, took me to the U.S. Naval Academy. And we did it in Maryland. And we did a tour of the grounds there. Uh, and I decided right then and there that that's what I wanted to do uh, yeah. with my life. I, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and be a Naval officer. Uh, and I wound, up, I wound up actually not getting into the Naval Academy, uh, which was what we call a character building moment for a 17-year-old uh, <laughs> who had wanted to do nothing else for eight years. Yeah. Uh, so it was, a, it was a bit of a character building moment, uh, but I did get into the Merchant Marine Academy. And so I took that chance and, and I had such a great experience. Uh, at Merchant Marine that even if I could go back and change it, I don't think I would. Uh, so while I was at Merchant Marine, I did a, a 30-day internship attached to an Army unit uh, as a cadet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I already had my plans. I wanted to go active duty, uh, but 
I wanted to go into the Navy and I had been very set on that for a long time. And I learned something. Uh, I learned two lessons. I was serving with an army logistics unit as a cadet. Uh, and I learned two really important lessons. One was that I absolutely hated the logistics career field. Uh, and the other was that I actually really enjoyed sort of the, the institutional culture and the approach to leadership that the army takes, um, you know? And so I, I kind of really changed horses midstream there. That was like my sophomore year, my, my third class year at the academy. Uh, and so kind of shifted gears from wanting to, wanting to be a naval officer to wanting to be an army officer. So that's what I did. Um, I graduated uh, as a second lieutenant and actually as, a, as an armor officer. Um, but I, had, I was an armor officer, which armors like tanks and Bradleys and, and strikers and all that stuff. Uh, but I wound up, I, once I got out of training, I never touched a tank again. I actually wound up as a cavalry officer. Uh, so I served in, in, at the time, what we were calling a RISTA squadron, which was reconnaissance, surveillance, and target acquisition. So it was kind of a fusion of a couple of different aspects of military intelligence with combat arms. Um, you know, and our whole job was just to go out and, and be scouts and collect information on the battlefield in, in real time. Uh, you know, sort of a human intelligence component uh, to the combat arms spectrum of things. Uh, it was absolutely awesome. I love being a scout. I love doing scout stuff. Um, Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of history in the cavalry, you know, all the way back to like Civil War era cavalry. And, you know, they were using horses all the way up to World War One. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, like I said, there's a lot of military history in it. It's, it's a very rich culture in the cavalry. And, I, you know, I kind of really dig that. Um, so I did four years. A year of that was in Iraq, uh, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And, and so also some counterinsurgency and some foreign advising as well, sort of training the Iraqi military to, right. to take care of their, their own country when we left. Uh, right. Yeah. That's one of the things that I read a lot about uh, Jocko Willink. I think I've mentioned him in every single podcast episode. He's a good dude, man. I like his stuff. Uh, but one of his books, uh, The Dichotomy of Leadership, have you read that? I have not. I, I know Jocko by reputation. Um, never met him. And, you know, his books are kind of on that bucket list that I'm still working my way yeah. down. I might need to send you that, man. That's a great book. But he talked about, um, you know, when he's leading his guys, he's like a lot of his guys, they were working with, uh, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Iraq. Ramadi, Ramadi's in Iraq, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. I get them mixed up, so... He was talking to his guys about um, how they need to train a lot of these Iraqi militants to be able to take their country back. Um, and he was just talking about how important it is to, you know, train those guys so that they can stand on their own two feet when the U.S. pulls out. So that's kind of what that reminded me of. Yeah, I, I, we did a lot of that. I, you know, that was, that was like a significant chunk of what I was doing while I was there. A lot of the, um, a lot of the kinetic war, as it were, was kind of really winding down. This was like 2010-ish. Right. Um, and things had been, this was post surge. So things were relatively quiet from a, you know, from a direct action standpoint. Right. Uh, and so that's, we, had, we were seizing on that opportunity to really kind of beef up their own uh, military and police capability and, you know, with the hopes that they could, they could be self-sustaining once we left. Yeah. That would be a crazy, crazy place to be during, I think it was really bad during 2004, I think, or 2004 was bad. And then the surge was like, uh, 07. 0708. Um, when I got to my unit, when I got to my Rista squadron as a freshly minted second lieutenant, though that unit was just coming back from a 15 month surge deployment, and those guys were, those guys were beat up pretty bad. Oh, yeah. 15 months is a long time to be over there. Yeah, um, I was there for 12, and that was, you know, that felt like a lifetime at the time. Uh, which, of course, I then wound up going back later as a contractor and doing four years on a revolving door program so maybe it wasn't that long after all 
what's that like? Um, what was what is that? Uh, yeah, so I got I got out of the army. I was off active duty about eighteen months, and then, like I said, turned around and went went back overseas, uh, doing close protection type work. Still working for the U.S. government, uh, just in a as a as a civilian uh, contractor capacity, uh, basically as a, like a like a bodyguard yeah. uh, for you know other than military folks that had to be over there to do their jobs. Uh, this was in Afghanistan. Now I did all my contract time in Afghanistan, so. Um, you know, folks who were from other government agencies that kind of didn't fall under the purview of being protected by the military, uh, but were still serving in a war zone and still needed protection. So, you know, that they, they would turn to, to contracting firms to provide, like I said, like close protection, uh, you know, PSD type stuff uh, for those guys. And uh, like I said, I, I did four years total to deploy. I did a lot more deployments, but they were much shorter, typically like 60 to 90 days. And then you'd go home and you get a month or two months off. Uh, so yeah. as opposed to when I was in the army, my deployment, which was 12 months long and I had one, two week break somewhere in there. Uh, so kind of a different dynamic. Um, like I said, you're coming in, yeah, you're coming and going a lot more, but you also get, like I said, I typically took, you know, 45 to 60 days off in between deployments and that was pure vacation. I didn't have a day job in between. Hmm. That's a long time. What do you think the biggest lesson is that you learned from the military? Oh, as I drop my cigar all over myself, um, <laughs> man, that's tough. Um, I, I guess I'll ask the uh, biggest lesson I learned on deployment was uh, that has really helped me in this job is quality of the equipment. So luckily I was in at a time where they were really starting to become more flexible and allowing guys to supplement their issued gear with, with personally purchased stuff. Um, whether it was like magazine pouches or uh, holsters and slings for their rifles and, and, you know, accessories like butt stocks, they were starting to loosen up the regs about you didn't have to necessarily use every piece of gear that you were issued. You could go out and buy stuff to add on to your, your plate carrier and whatnot um, if you felt like it served your needs better. Uh, and so right before I left for Iraq, I went and bought a whole slew of brand new stuff except I went and bought it off like eBay and like from military surplus stores because I didn't know any better. Yeah. Uh, and all of that stuff was chewed up and broken and destroyed within the first 90 days of my deployment. Really? So all the stuff, like all my issued stuff I had left in a lockbox back home because like, I don't need it. I like this stuff better. So I bought this stuff and I didn't know what I was doing really is what it boils down to. So, uh, all that stuff got destroyed in the first 90 days, just daily use. You know, just, just being out and about using it in the sun for, you know, 9, 10, 14 hours a day. Uh, and it all just broke down and tore and it had holes in it and stuff snapped. And um, so here I was in Iraq ordering stuff off, you know, Amazon or having guys mail me stuff uh, that, I, that was of higher quality. And it cost me, literally cost me twice as much money because if I just bought the, the high quality stuff the first time around, it would have held me through the entire trip. So uh, buy once, cry once was definitely a pretty valuable lesson uh, that I learned then that now my whole job is literally kind of testing and evaluating and reviewing gear. Um, yeah. And that's something that kind of sticks with me every time I start an article. I bet that's probably pretty expensive to ship some from the United States to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. you know, wartime event. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I was lucky at that time, a lot of companies, I mean, we'd been in Iraq since 03. Uh, Afghanistan since 01. So, you know, APO addresses and things like that were already established. Now, I, thankfully, I could get stuff, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whereas a couple of years earlier, I might not have been able to replace all that equipment. 
was the equipment you bought just not very durable or was it just that you used it so much? You said you're using about 14 hours a day. Uh, probably a little of both. I mean, you know, 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week is that's going to be hard on any, any piece right. of kit. Uh, but like I said, like I bought a lot of it off eBay and, and, you know, cheaper than dirt and, uh, you know, like local military surplus stores, you know, and it was kind of like, I would go and find something that I, a, a pouch or a sling or something that I really liked. I would decide that that was too expensive and then try and find something that was sort of close enough for half the money. Of course. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and we all that, do, man. That's what we all yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, man. So uh, we didn't have wish.com at that point, but you know, kind of the, you know, the sort of the joke about, Oh, it's the wish.com version. It's just as good. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, that's not the case, uh, <laughs> you know, particularly with that kind of stuff when it, when it really is seeing a legitimate hard use for extended hours, weeks and months on end. Definitely better to buy quality if you're going to be putting it under that much stress. Yeah, that was, like I said, that was a hard lesson I learned pretty quickly into that deployment. Yeah. So how did you get started with writing? What got you uh, into that? Were you writing it all while you're serving or was that afterwards? Uh, writing's always kind of like creative writing. It's kind of always been a, a hobby of mine. I, I still, when I can find the time, like to write in fiction. You know, uh, when I was in high school, I actually... I wrote a lot of poetry, which is not something you're going to hear from guys with my resume, but I did. I wrote a bunch of poetry. Um, and I, like I said, I still like to dabble in fiction. I've never, none of that stuff's ever been published anywhere. It was kind of just something I was doing as a hobby. Uh, but while I was deployed uh, overseas, while I was deployed to Iraq with the army, um, I was writing, I didn't even know what a blog was, but I was every like once a month, I would send like a big long email update to like some of my friends and family yeah about what i was not just what i was doing the things that i i could talk about about what i was doing but also kind of what the emotional experience was uh you know it was my first combat deployment i was you know whatever 23 24 years old right. uh you know i was a platoon leader at the time so i was responsible for you know 25 other lives uh and making sure that those guys kind of all came home on their own two feet uh you know and that's a big burden when you're kind of fresh out of college and um you know, so, uh, so I, I was sending these email updates home, uh, and I kind of had like a distro list of people that were kind of close to me that were interested in hearing these things. And, um, a, a friend of mine who was doing something not even related to, uh, publishing or writing of any kind when I left for Iraq, while I was in Iraq, uh, she quit her current job and then actually wound up as a, as a managing editor at guns and ammo magazine. Okay. And so unbeknownst to me while I was overseas, I was sending kind of these email updates home and she was forwarding them to people that she worked with uh, there at, at, at GNA. And I got back and kind of was making a bunch of phone calls again to some friends and family, sort of just checking in and uh, reestablishing kind of some of those relationships and spoke to her. You know, her, her number came up and I gave her a phone call and, hey, I'm back from Iraq. Like, I'm all right. Like, things are, I'm settling back in. And she kind of made it known to me that, hey, like, I hope you don't mind, but I've been sending, you know, those email updates you were sending. Um, I was passing them around at the office and, and we would like to give you a, a crack at writing for us. So I, I started as a sort of a, a casual freelance contributor for Guns and Ammo, which is really how I got my break. And from there, I kind of branched out and I wrote for SWAT and World of Firepower and Tactical Training and uh, a couple of blogs uh, and, and Recoil. 
Um, and then kind of as, and it, you know, parallel to that, I, I went back overseas as a contractor and I was kind of doing this revolving door. I'd go overseas for 90 days. I'd come home for, you know, 40 to 60. And while I was home, I would write a bunch of articles. I'd review some guns and some gear. You know, I turn those articles into my respective editors, get back on a plane and go overseas. And I was kind of in that revolving door for that, that period of time. Uh, and then I honestly, as time went on, I was doing more and more work for recoil and less and less work for everybody else. Uh, to the point where, where Ian Harrison, the editor uh, in chief of recoil picked up the phone and called me and said, Hey, look, I don't, I don't know where you are in your career as a contractor, but you know, we're, we're expanding and, and we could use a couple of, of more full-time staffers and, and I'd like to offer you that opportunity. And here I am. That's awesome. So that was going on. You were writing while you're contracting as well. Mm -hmm. Is that difficult to juggle? Uh, not really. Like I said, when I was home, I, I didn't have a, a day job when I was on vacation as a contractor, when I was home on leave. So it was, you know, 60 days of, of you know, Saturdays and Sundays stacked back to back to back to back to back for eight weeks. Yeah. Uh, so honestly, the writing kind of gave me something to do that didn't really require me to have to like get a job and go into work every day. Yeah, yeah. So well, it was, I, yeah. I would say it was, I, I got into it rhythm i got into a good rhythm like i said i'd disappear for you know a couple months and i'd be two weeks out from coming back home and i'd you know ping all my editors via email or whatever and say hey what do you got for me i'll be home in two weeks right. i'd get home you know and there'd be a bunch of uh, test items waiting for me to, to start working on and i'd get all those knocked out while i was home ship them all all the articles out to the editors and then get on a plane and go back what's your favorite part about writing because for me it's i don't write much but when i do it's just relaxing to me is that yeah, the, for you just to empty uh, your your mind and put it out there on something else whether it's paper or you know word document whatever it is that's just there's, there's definitely a for me there's a zen to it um you know uh, i i work remote i mean a lot of people are kind of working remote now but uh, i've been working remote full-time since I, I took the job with recoil and uh you know it's really nice to be able to uh sit here in a rocking chair with a cigar and Look pretty cool. You look pretty. With a, you know, with yeah, with a with a glass of, of awesome hoot and young whiskey. Yeah. Um. You know, because as soon as I get off of this with you, like I'm gonna go back to writing. I mean, this is you know, it's nice. That this, like this is my work environment. Laid back. Um, yeah. So it is. There's definitely a zen to it, uh, and, and it allows me a lot of personal freedom and flexibility, and that's that's really great too. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I've I spoke to a couple of writers in the past, just kind of the being able to just let loose and just put it all out there on, on something else. Yeah. You know, and the, and the other thing for me, particularly writing in the context of articles, as opposed to fiction or anything else, um, it's really great to have, you know, a decade's worth of deployments under my belt. Uh, you know, and I know for, for a lot of veterans, it's a tra that transition of, of letting all that go and moving on past it is a, you know, it's a huge obstacle. Um, and, you know, I, I won't say that I didn't have my bumps in the road along the way, uh, but I will say that this job has been a huge help because really what this has allowed me to do is take all that experience and um, put it directly to work when I, uh, when I evaluate guns or gear, or, you know, or I attend training, you know, self-defense or firearms related training in the industry uh, that I then can, can write reviews and pass those lessons on to our readers. Um, you know, and it allows me to, to transform that experience into something that is tangible for, you know, the rest of the world. Right. Um, you know, it's not something I don't have to put a cork in 10 years of my life and try and, you know, 
go do something else that, that doesn't, you know, where I can't put that experience to use. Um, this particular type of writing has allowed me to, um, you know, sort of continue to, to, to maintain that part of myself and, and fold my identity as a, as a veteran and as a contractor and, and as somebody with all this overseas time into something where that experience is directly applicable. Exactly. I was going to say the exact same thing. Um, it seems like that really kind of fits your history, your experience. It's not like you're writing about, you know, let's say for CNN, just for lack of a better example, yep. where everything's just negative and it's not like what you like to do. This kind of fits into your experience, just kind of who you are. Yeah. And like I said, I, you know, I didn't have to necessarily, you know, learn a completely new trade where none of my skills were applicable and you know, uh, I, I am uh, incredibly blessed and fortunate to, to wind up in a position like this where, you know, it was a pretty seamless transition. And it's just like, well, instead of going overseas, now you're just going to take that experience and those lessons and those memories, and you're going to use that to help educate people, uh, make better consumers, make people more prepared to take care of themselves and their own daily lives. And um, so that's very rewarding to be able to have something very tangible to do with all of that experience. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about recoil. So how long have you been there? I started writing for them. Like I said, when I was a contractor, uh, as a freelance contributor, I want to say 2013, 2014, uh, and then went on with them full time in 2017. Uh, so I started out as, as senior editor for recoil magazine. Uh, and then a little over a year ago, um, I, I got, I don't know if I necessarily want to say promoted or transferred because I still work with recoil and I work with concealment and all, all the recoil titles, but um, kind of being put in charge specifically of, of recoil off grid, you know, which is the survival prepper title, um, yep. you know, to now where as opposed to just writing stories and editing stories, I'm designing covers and I'm dictating sort of the overall creative direction. And I get to, you know, I get to assign stories out about things that I think that we should be covering and, and making those decisions and, you know, sitting back and watching the world do what it's doing all around us and saying, all right, well, based on my, again, based on my experience and based on what I'm watching go on in the world, here are some things that I, here are some skills and here are some, some pieces of equipment and some, you know, some products that I think that people really need to know about because I think it's really relevant. And I, I think these are things that can help people and having the opportunity to make those decisions. Um, and I, I have a couple of editors that assist me on the off-road right. side um, and you know they, they're my sounding board and make sure that I'm not running off on a tangent um, but having the opportunity to sort of make those decisions and, and get reader feedback and adjust as we go and you know and, and and the satisfaction of putting an article out and then getting people emailing in going hey that was a great article I didn't know anything about that topic but now that I do I'm going to go out and do more reading about it and because I think it's something that I need to know to take care of my family or take care of myself or my children uh, you know, and that's super rewarding. Yeah, I bet that would be pretty cool. So stepping into more of a leadership position. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's pretty cool. Um, awesome, man. So I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the biggest misconceptions with, um, you know, off-grid and some of the, the two-way community. Because um, I know there has to be a lot of them. No. It is, um, particularly for me, shifting from, from working primarily on the recoil brand to uh, working on, on the off-grid side, uh, particularly with that sort of, of prepper, self-sustaining you know, self living or, or self-sufficient living type thing. Um, I, first of all, I hate the word prepper. Um, I, there's a huge stigma attached to it. 
you know, before I started actually getting hands on more with off grid, you know, my experience was, uh, you know, watching TV shows like Doomsday Preppers, right? right. You know, and ever between that, you know, there's like The Walking Dead, and actually the one that I really like to reference it dates me a little, but uh, the one I really like to reference is Tremors, if you oh, remember that. that movie. Oh yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah. Well, so you know, and the thing is with with Tremors is like everybody loves to use you know. Uh, you know, Bert and his wife as comic relief and they had this basement full of guns and, you know, pipe bombs and all this shit. And, um, you know, they're, they're kind of comic relief for a lot of the movie. And then kind of when it comes down to brass tacks, they, they wind up saving everybody's skin. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, but, I, you know, stuff like that, it gets reinforced over and over and over again where people who are interested in preparedness and people who are interested in being able to be responsible for their own safety and well-being um really they get marginalized and they get uh scorned as crazy or conspiratorial or you know that they're paranoid and they're living in fear yeah uh, you know there's there's all these stereotypes that come as soon as you say as soon as you mention the dreaded p word right as soon as you start talking about preppers or prepping you know oh no i'm not i'm not a prepper like yeah. i want to be able to take care of my self if 911 can't answer the phones uh, but I'm not a prepper like I'm not that guy right and I think this year has changed a lot of people's perceptions about that because I think for the first time uh, that in my lifetime it was a it was a reality that you depending on where you lived in the country you might pick up the phone to call 911 and they might tell you sorry you know they that you might pick up the phone and no one will let you know for call for help and no one is coming um, and I think a lot of people dismiss that as like, oh, that'll never happen in America. That'll never happen in my insert major metropolitan city here. You know, and again, growing up in New York City, it was very much like that. Like, yeah. oh, what do you need to know how to, you know, uh, you know, why do you need to know how to skin a rabbit? Or why do you need to know how to shoot a gun? Why do you need to know how to, you know, run a diesel generator? Like if anything's, if anything's wrong, I'll just, I'll just call, I'll call someone, call somebody. you know, I'll call the police or I'll call my electrician or. Uh, you know, I'll call whoever and, and they'll come and help me. Um, and you saw a lot of people come to the realization that like, that is, that is a luxury item. Exactly. Um, that is a luxury commodity that we as Americans and, and as first world citizens are blessed to have. Uh, but it is not mandatory. It is not something that is guaranteed, you know, and the biggest thing that I like to tell people about prepping that kind of like makes them really uncomfortable, um, is to say that there is there is a misconception or a preconception of well if you're you claim to be a prepper that you have a, a bunker in your basement full of yeah. you know, canned canned food and bullets and flashlights and I think that's uh, a thing. Yeah, it's a super it's super common and it's something yeah. that you know TV shows and movies and and pop culture has sort of really reinforced that. Uh, but the bottom line is, if you keep jumper cables in the trunk of your car, you're a prepper. Right. And that kind of like, that's like a kind of a full stop of the conversation for a lot of people like, oh, no, 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 I'm not a prepper. Well, then what do you keep the jumper cables for? Well, you know, what if my battery dies? Yeah. Okay, great. So you're taking action right now to prepare for something that might happen, which could disrupt your normal daily routine. Yeah. That is prepping in a nutshell. It's taking the action now to prepare for the possibility that something might come along to disrupt your daily routine, whether it's for a couple of hours or a couple of weeks or longer, you know, in, in the case of 2020. Um, 
you know, but people know that, like I said, sometimes it makes people uncomfortable when I have that, I throw that point at them. Uh, because again, there's such, such a pre preconceived notion of like what it means, like sociopolitically to be a prepper. And like, it, that doesn't matter. Like who you voted for, uh, you know, what your views on social justice are, what your, you know, views on, uh, you know, nationalized healthcare, none of that crap matters. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't be prepared. It doesn't mean that you can't believe whatever the hell you want to believe and also say, you know what? Like, it's not a political statement. It's not a moral statement. It yeah, is, exactly. you know, uh, something might happen where I don't have cell service. It could be that simple, right? It doesn't have to be 2020. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, there, was a, there wasn't there was a scene, I want to say like in The Purge, where it's like, you know, what if you, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't The Purge. It was uh, Live Free or Die Hard. There was a scene where they put this big thing up on the screen, like, what happens if you call 911 and no one answers? You know, and in, in that time when that movie came out, I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. And like, honestly, here we are. Um, but it doesn't always have to be that. It could be like, hey, like I'm driving from, you know, Tucson to Phoenix and I'm taking side, you know, state roads, two lane state roads, and I don't have cell service. Right. You know, okay, so you keep jumpers cables in your car. What about a first aid kit? What about a couple of, you know, power bars and a, and a bottle of water? You know, does that make yeah. you a, a conspiracy theorist or paranoid? Yeah. Like, why? You think that, why does it have to translate into that? Yeah, I completely. Do you think the fear of being labeled as one of those things and that prevents people from preparing? Yes, absolutely. I think that this year has kind of made people rethink that stigma. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, prior to March of this year, I think absolutely. I think there were people that were probably very curious about wanting to be more self-sufficient. Um, you know, who didn't, who felt like maybe like, well, what if like, who maybe asked themselves that question of like, you know, what if help is two hours away? Right. Um, and they never pursued it because like, oh yeah, but like, I'm not like, I'm not that guy. Like I'm not the Unabomber living in a cabin in the woods, you know, yeah. ranting about the, the, you know, corruption of society with modern technology. Like that's, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go yeah. that far down the rabbit hole. Like those guys are kind of a, that's a whole a whole other thing you yeah. know there's nothing that says that you can't uh you know like i said throw some uh, a couple of band-aids and a, a power bar in your trunk it doesn't <laughs> that doesn't label you as crazy but there was there's there's been a, a big stigma about that yeah yeah i completely agree it can be simple what, what what advice would you give to somebody who's you know asking themselves you know okay I, i'm i'm sold on this what should i do you know that's within you know a small budget for people to you know become more prepared it's kind of kind of subjective too, because prepared for what a fire, prepared for someone to break into your house, your a car to break down. Like it could be for anything. You know what I mean? So, and that is going to be my answer to your question. Yeah, is to say that the the first step in in wanting to be again, like I hate the word prepper, so I will say, the first step in being prepared. Yeah, to take care of yourself. Um, if you're going to prepare for something, step number one is what are you preparing for? Right. You know, um, yeah. Are, are, do you genuinely believe, you know, are you preparing for red dawn? Are you preparing that you're going <laughs> to roll out of bed and, and Russian paratroopers are going to be landing on your front lawn? And, and like, if, if, if you genuinely think that that is a realistic threat you're going to face in your lifetime, prepare for it, you know, do take whatever measures you think you have to take within your means and your budget, um, to be prepared for that. Uh, I, I would argue that probably a lot of people aren't necessarily losing sleep over that right now, right? Um, so step one, really, it's, it's, it's a thought experiment. 
before you start going out and buying stuff, all right, what do you need to prepare, be prepared for? Mm-hmm. And then in the military, we had a term called backwards planning, right? And backwards planning was you start with how you want your mission to end. Like, what is your end result that you need to achieve? You right. know, um, or do you live in an area that's prone to wildfires or tornadoes or hurricanes? Um, are you in a major metropolitan city that has seen, you know, large scale protests with shutdowns of business and, and lack of availability of basic resources? What are, what is it that you're worried about? Yeah. You know? And so that's my, you know, well, where do I start? Well, where do you start is what are you worried about? What, what do you think that you might have to deal with without anybody else's help? And then, then that's when, how you decide, well, what stuff do I need? And, and, you know, uh, what kind of plans do I have to make and what do I put in my trunk and all that stuff that that's all going to come very much based off what you think that your needs are. Yeah. That's, that's a great answer. Um, and you don't need to post about it either. I feel like people probably need to post. I feel like people feel they need to post about everything nowadays. Yes. If it didn't post about it, it didn't happen. The reality is if I'm some if I'm a bad guy, I'm not. Well, a bad guy, and I see somebody with all the supplies over there. I'm going to take his shit if, if shit hits the fan. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there, there, so there like, is. So that's a double. That's a double-edged sword because there's. I hear that a lot. Like, oh, I don't tell anybody about what you know what my plans are because somebody might come and you know break in and take all my stuff. Yeah. Again, if you think that that is a concern in in your area or in your life based on you know where you live and what your routine is, mm-hmm. you know, um, then yeah, like keep yeah. that shit on the down low. Um, <laughs> The flip side, though, that I will say to like posting, you know, about everything yeah. um, is that if, if there is a benefit to that kind of way of thinking is like, oh, if I didn't post, it didn't happen. Um, it opens up the avenue um, to have knowledge imparted to you by anybody who scrolls by that post. That's a good point. You know, if you post on Instagram, you say hey, like if you take a picture of your jumper cables and your first aid kit, and your box of power bars sort of laid out in your driveway and be like, yeah, like this is like my new sort of preparedness kit for my car. Like how cool am I? You know, there's a chance that somebody in your circle, you know, is going to come by and go, Hey man, like that's a cool kit. Where's your flashlight? Cause what if you got to jump that car in the dark and you go, Oh my God, I got my power bars and my band-aids and my jumper cables and I don't have a flashlight. Like, so there, you know, there, there is the potential for there to actually be some good benefit to, you know, sort of sharing, you know, that, that kind of, uh, endeavor with people around you. Completely agree. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be like G14 classified that, you know, you want to keep some extra supplies in your trunk. Yeah, definitely probably better to be the, the quiet guy with all the guns and ammo and food and stuff. It's, it's really- yeah. Well, once you, once you started talking to, into that level, right. Or guys who have, you know, say they have lots of people are kind of doing the precious metals thing and they, you know, they have gold ingots or, or, you know, bullion and like, yeah, I wouldn't, if I had 30,000 in gold sitting in my safe in my bedroom, like I don't think I'd be putting that on Instagram. Yeah. So, you know, there's, again, everything is a trade-off and, and the, you know, the thing about prepping and, and preparedness and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be at an extreme. Wanting to be prepared does not automatically force you to one end of the spectrum or the other. You could be very level-headed about it and go, okay, well, like I'm not going to post like all my emergency cash around my house, but like, okay, like I'm going to post like my, my roadside rescue kit and like, cause I think it's cool and it's something I'm doing. I want to share that with my friends and like maybe someone will chime in with something I missed. 
completely agree. Yeah, definitely. I think the the polarity of just people on either side of the spectrum nowadays is causing so many problems. What do you think about that? I think that we have lost the ability to have civil discourse in this country about pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, to get some whiskey and some cigars. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, sit down on a porch with a, with a cigar and just, you know, and just talk about it. I run into, you know, I have friends from all over the political spectrum and um, I guarantee you based on the things that I have said already, people have probably already made guesses and assumptions and projections about how I vote and what I believe. And I guarantee you like 90% of those people would probably be pretty shocked if we had a face-to-face -face conversation that we went in depth into, you know, what those things are. Right. Um, you know, my, my personal opinion is, is diversity of thought and diversity of opinion is what makes this country great. Oh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no need to have to dislike someone or unfriend somebody because they believe something that's different than you. Completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, how boring would the world be if everybody agreed on everything? I mean, exactly. So, I mean, we can disagree and still be friends. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I, I tend to, without going too far down on this rabbit hole, I, I would argue among some other things, I would, you know, consider myself a, a constitutionalist, uh, you know, when it comes to legislation and things like that. That's a good uh, one. You know, and there's, there is no lack of, of evidence and writings and history to show that the founding fathers went at each other's throats as they were hammering out the constitution. And they all believed, you know, they, there were some very, very hard fought disagreements about what should go into the constitution and the bill of rights and our founding, you know, infrastructure as a nation and what shouldn't. Um, and that's how we got to the system we have, you know, and, and, my line of, you know, my, my answer to somebody who wants to pick that apart would be, do I think that the system is, is flawless? No, absolutely not. Right. I do think that it is probably the best system that we have available to us, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that anybody has come up with anything better than the framework that we have. And that framework was created by guys, you know, I mean, these guys, if you, if you ever read any of like the, if you've read any of the newspapers from that kind of late 1700s, early 1800s, those guys would get into the editorial columns in like, you know, national publications and say all kinds of horrible things about each other, just like we do now. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, like they sat down in that room in Philadelphia and they figured it the hell out. Um, and that difference of opinion, those different approaches to you know, strength of central government and states' rights and, and you know, basic human rights and all that stuff. Um, you know, people butt heads about that. And that was, that's great that people butt heads about that because what we wound up with was a, a blending of what all those different perspectives were, you know, and, and we've lost the ability, I feel like, to just sit down and talk about it and go, hey, look, I don't really agree with any of that, but like, okay. Right. Why? Asking why you feel that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting way, to, good way to put it, uh, to think about it, is being a constitutionalist. Um, I mean, it was written, what, like, it was 1776, so, what, almost 250 close years? Yep. I mean, it's, it, it's clearly working. So, um, yeah, man, I mean, that's, that's definitely a good way to think of it. Um, awesome, man. So, 
Uh, my final question, where can people find you um, on social? Where can they reach out to you with Recoil? Um, how can our people find you? Uh, easiest, way, uh, easiest way to find me is through, through Recoil, through Recoil Off-Grid. So uh, Instagram is at Recoil Off-Grid Magazine, all one word. Uh, no symbols, no crazy punctuation, just at Recoil Off-Grid Magazine. Uh, it's Off-Grid Magazine on Facebook. The website is www.offgridweb.com. Uh, and if you want to get to me personally, it's Tom, T-O-M dot Marshall dot author uh, at Instagram. Awesome, man. I'm curious. Do you have a lot of people blowing you up, like pitching you and stuff? <laughs> That's what every yeah. editor I've ever spoken to is, oh my gosh, my inbox gets blasted every single day. It comes in waves. I'll go like a month or two where like, uh, you know, I, I have my sort of circle of guys that I use, my men and women, my writers that, that I kind of are regular contributors. Uh, and those guys are always pitching me. And I want them to do that. But in terms of like cold pitches from people I've never dealt with before, um, I'll go through, you know, I'll have a month or two where I don't get them at all. Uh, and then, you know, I'll go through three or four weeks where just like every day it's like, well, have you considered writing an article about this? Getting hammered. You know? Yeah. That's funny. Awesome. Yeah, so it depends. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on, brother. Appreciate, Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. No problem, man.